Good morning, church. I get the privilege of speaking on the last words of the Apostles' Creed. This will be our 14th week on a series that we are calling We Believe, and it's the last words of the Creed are the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dig in here. Let me get this thing working. And there are the words. The resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful to be here. And as always, we need you in every way. We need you here this morning. For the breath that is in our lungs, we need you this morning here today to open up the eyes of our heart, open up the ears of our heart for us to be able to hear you, for us to be able to see your truth that you want to bring to us today. And Spirit, move that truth in our lives and help us to respond to it the way that you need us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So notice that the creed doesn't just say, I believe in heaven, right? It's, it's very specific, and I like that. I, I appreciate that because if it was just to say, I believe in heaven, well, what is that? What is it? I think it opens the door. If it just says heaven, it opens the door to a lot of different interpretations. You know that 72% of Americans believe in some sort of heaven? I did some reading, and I spoke to a lot of people that I interacted with this week, and I asked them the question, what do you think heaven's going to be like? Here's my top ten list. Heaven is a place where you can take lots of naps, and the temperature is a constant 73 degrees. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I hope so. Uh, Number nine, I have the ability to get whatever I want whenever I want it. Number eight, of course, is lots of clouds and wings and harps. Number seven, uh, you're going to find your pet there. Uh, there. Number six, heaven is a place where there's this big party with lots of amazing food and drink. Okay? Number five, you'll be able to partake in your favorite pastimes unhindered, like playing golf or basket weaving or whatever that may be. Number four, heaven is a place where there is a family reunion. Right? We will be able to see our loved ones. Number three, pearly gates and streets of gold. Number two is travel and explore. Man, I hope so. Like, that sounds really awesome to do. And number one, my all-time favorite, and the person who said this, they were so genuine and they were so serious about this. This is so good. Everyone is very well-mannered. <laughs> That is their idea of heaven. Like, no, everyone's just going to be so well-mannered. It's going to be great. Like, oh, you look fantastic this morning. Well, so do you. Let me get the door for you. Oh, no, no, let me get the door for you. Oh, no, thank you. It's it's so good. Everyone is going to be very well-mannered. There's a lot of speculation about what heaven is going to be like. The fact is that we don't really know what heaven is going to be like, do we? But we do know that before heaven happens, before we get there, there is this thing called death. The Bible describes death as the final enemy. And unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime, the fact is that we will all experience death. And some people think that this is a grim place to go in our thinking. It's a grim place to go in conversation or the beginning of a sermon. Uh, But the fact is that it is a reality. This mortal body, your mortal bodies will die. 
We know it from experience. We know it because God tells us the wages of sin is death. Death is a fundamental human problem that we have to deal with. We know this, but what are we supposed to do with it? Do we just ignore it? Hope that it goes away? We're supposed to push it down in the recesses of our hearts, push it down in the recesses of our mind, or we distract ourselves away from that topic to numb our minds with something like alcohol or entertainment or your choice of drug? What are we supposed to do with it? I think when we start finding answers to these types of questions, when we begin to look at a more underlying question about death, is that it? Is that it? Is death truly final? Because if death is the end of our lives and there is nothing after that, then nothing is worthwhile in this life except for self-indulgence. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? You better squeeze all the enjoyment of life uh, that you can out of life as much as you can. You grab life and you, and you hoard it and you enjoy it, uh, and even at others' expenses, because this is all that there is. And if the dead are not raised, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. And Paul says in that same chapter, chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is if the dead are not raised. But as believers, we believe in the resurrection. We confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And we believe and confess that there is life everlasting because the Bible teaches it. God tells us, he gives us his promises regarding resurrection and life everlasting. And the very first thing that we're gonna look at is the resurrection. And the very first thing about resurrection that we're going to look at is that it is a fact. It is a fact, it is not fiction. Paul tells us in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he says not only has Christ been raised, but he describes his resurrection as the first fruits of a very large harvest of resurrections. And Paul goes on to devote that entire chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, to the resurrection telling us of God's promises, reminding believers that resurrection is a fact. And not only is it a fact, but it is a necessary fact. John Locke, an 18th century philosopher, said this, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. And Jesus spent much of his time in his teaching on the resurrection. Remember, right before Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, he's talking to, to, uh, to Martha. And this is Lazarus' sister. And uh, Jesus is on the way to the house, and, uh, and Martha comes out to meet him. And she says, you're too late. You're too late. My brother died four days ago. In John chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, oh, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. 
And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, notice that Jesus doesn't say to Martha, no, Martha, you're mistaken. There is no resurrection. No, he says, I am the resurrection. And then he brings Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. He responds to the Jews. And this is right after he, he tipped over the, the money-changing tables and he, he drove the people out of the temple and he, and he tells them to take away these things. Uh, don't make my father's house into a house of trade. Okay, and then in John chapter 2, starting in verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How do we know that you have the right to come in here and do this stuff to the temple? How do we know that you have the right to come in here and call the temple your father's house? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. The empty tomb points to the validity of who Jesus was and the words that he spoke, the empty tomb, a resurrected Jesus, him walking and talking and eating with the disciples, 500 witnesses of this, all pointing to the resurrection as a fact and as a promise of God. And for every single human being, this is a very significant fact. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, without a living Jesus, there is no Savior. And it turns out that it's not possible to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrected Jesus. And when we're saved by Jesus... Okay, who is the resurrection, then resurrection doesn't just apply to him, it applies to us as well. His resurrection was the first of a large and plentiful harvest of resurrections to be. He is the resurrection, and he is that for you and I. He's a resurrection of those that he saves, and it is a necessary fact, and we as a church, we confess that it's true. It was true of Jesus and we confess that it is true for us and for those who are followers of Jesus, not, not just that our souls either. It's not just that our souls will be brought back to life, but we look forward to an actual physical resurrection of our bodies. There's a bodily resurrection. And in talking about a bodily resurrection of those who are in Christ, Paul gives this great illustration. We go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we're going to be spending most of our time in. And Paul says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So years ago, before we had kids, my wife and I, we decided that we would take a road trip uh, and we would see the Redwoods in California. And if you've never seen them, and I highly recommend it. They are over the top. If you've seen them, you know what I'm talking about. They are amazing. And I was taking a look at some photos this last week of that, of the trip and of the, of the trees and just remembering and just knowing that photos just don't do anything justice, right? Like it doesn't really, it doesn't show, it doesn't represent uh, the magnitude of these things. But I did find um, a couple of black and white 
pictures from the early 1900s uh, that I thought were really cool. This is the Boy Scout tree, and it's written here that the diameter is 31 feet at the base. 31 feet, okay, that's like a three-story building almost on its side. That's how wide this tree is. They're huge, and they are spectacular, uh, and it's almost unbelievable. I mean, look at that. It's almost unbelievable that these things exist. And here's a picture of their teeny, tiny seeds. There's a dime right here next to them. They're like little oats. And there's this unimaginable difference between the seed and the tree that it grows into. They do not look alike, but they are of the same essence. The seed is the tree, and the tree is the seed. But there's no way that you could guess the appearance of the tree by merely looking at the seed, right? Paul says in verse 37 of 1 Corinthians 15, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, right, just as the seed and the redwood. The body will die. He's saying that though it will not be the end. That is not the end. Death is not the end. Death is a change. The seed will continue to be a seed until it is planted and dies, and then redwoods happen, okay? And Paul says in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Even though the seed and the redwood are of the same essence, they are totally and radically different. He says, just as a seed that is sown will die before growing into what it is to be, our bodies will also die. And in the illustration, we will be, uh, in a way of speaking, planted, okay? And then, when that happens, redwoods. Redwoods, because there's this unimaginable difference between the seed and what it grows into. And Paul gives us a glimpse then of what our bodies will look like after they have been planted and grown and become something radically different. It's in verses 42 through 44. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown or what is planted, what is, what is planted as a seed uh, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We will be raised. And the seed that is our body will grow into a body that Paul says, first of all, is imperishable. As seeds, our bodies are perishable, meaning that they wear out. They're susceptible to illness and they're susceptible to disease. Our bodies, in this body that, that I have right now, there is no escaping death. But Paul says we will be raised imperishable, meaning our bodies will not wear out. They won't be subject to sickness or disease or illness or pain. We won't have to wear masks ever because there won't be any viruses. And even if there were, our bodies would be impervious to them. So we don't have to worry about things like vaccines. We don't have to worry about medications or medical treatments. There won't be any cancer. There won't be any pain. Yeah, praise God for that. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, they have passed away. It is now imperishable. And then he says our bodies will be raised in glory. Paul says instead of dishonor, our bodies will be raised in glory. So say, uh, sin, it, it, what sin does is it, is it takes things that were designed to bring honor to God and glory to God, things like our minds and our bodies, and it twists them. It contaminated them and made them inherently of less value as it relates to doing the things that God has designed them to do. But there will be a day that our bodies will be resurrected in glory and we will be physically perfected in order to please God and praise God and glorify God with nothing getting in the way that could disrupt that potential. He says, in power, that we're sown in weakness but we're raised in power, that God doesn't tell us what that power is or what it is capable of doing, but I think sayings like, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, will no longer apply. One thought is that anything that our heavenly spirits want to do, well, then our heavenly bodies will be able to accomplish, or whatever God would have us do, we will have the power and physical ability to do it very, very well. It'll be the difference between the seed and the tree that it grows into, Paul says that we will have a spiritual body when we are raised. Currently, we have a natural body. And the human body, although it is uh, perishable, it is also quite amazing. God has made us in our mother's womb. We, uh, he says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And this natural body that we have is designed, it is made for living on this earth, right? And this is the only realm that this body is able to live. But when we're living in a heavenly place, Paul says that we will have a body that will be perfectly suited for that realm, a spiritual body that will be perfected, a spiritual body perfectly equipped and perfectly suited for a place radically different than the place that we live now. In short of it, it says that we will have bodies like Jesus. Later on in that chapter, chapter 15, verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Philippians chapter 3, 20 through 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. These are God's promises to us. And the resurrection is as real as the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else that God spoke into existence. Our resurrection is as sure as our salvation that we have right now. And we can be confident in the resurrection of our bodies because we have the promise of God in his word. It is not a fairy tale. In fact, it is the hope of every believer. And so we believe in the resurrection of the body and we believe in life everlasting. One of the things that we find about human existence is that you can't make life better only by adding quantity. Is this true? Steve Jobs once said that quality is more important than quantity. One home run is much better than two doubles. Isn't that true? 
It's so true. One home run is much better than two doubles. This is how we have sayings like everything in moderation, right? Just because something is good, it doesn't mean uh, that having more of it is better unless having more of it uh, adds some sort of quality to our life. So at first glance, we might think that the creed, when it says life everlasting, is only talking about life that goes on and on and on and on. But what is our initial feelings about life that goes on and on and on and on? Wouldn't that be terribly boring? And it probably would be boring if, if eternal life was only just an infinite extension of the life that we now know, right? It would be horribly boring. There's two words in the Greek for life. One is bios, and that is biological existence. And the other one is called zoe. It means life in all of its fullness, a life that comes from and is sustained by God's self-existent life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have zoe, life to its fullness, to have it abundantly. What God offers to us in Jesus right here, right now, and this life is not just a biological existence, is it? It is a fullness of life a fullness that death can't even take from us, a fullness of life. And so life everlasting isn't just an infinitely long life. It's a transformation into a fullness of life that has no bounds, nothing holding us back from the quality of life that God offers to us from knowing him and being with him. It's only by adding quality that life is better. And so we confess that we believe in eternal life and when we do, it's important to realize that we're not just talking about the duration of life. What we're talking about in reality is a relationship. And it's so important for us as we look at this topic this morning of eternal life, it's so important for us in embracing eternal life and all the joys and hopes that come with it to know that what we're really talking about is relationship. It is about knowing Jesus and about knowing God. One commentator said it this way, when we find our way to the living source of life, to Jesus himself, we discover that death is not really death anymore. Even in death, our relationship to Jesus is not severed. Death becomes another place where we can go to find him. Wherever we go, he waits to meet us there. Man, that is fantastic. See, fullness of life is not something that we get to experience apart from knowing God. Because when we come to faith in Jesus, we begin a new relationship with God. And in that relationship, our lives are deepened. Right? There's a tremendous amount of quality that is added when we know Jesus. And what death does is it just sweeps away all the obstacles and everything remaining in this life that would get in the way of experiencing knowing God fully and being with him and being near him. See, death does not wait for us to bring us to some place that is strange or scary or unknown. No, it is a deepening of something that we already get to experience. It is the presence and it is the love of God. It is a quality of life unlike any other. It is the difference between the seed and the tree that it grows into. J.I. Packer, 
He says this about the subject. We can't visualize heaven. The wise man will not try. Instead, we will dwell on the doctrine of heaven, and there we will find our heart's desire, joy with their Lord, joy with his people, and joy in the ending of all frustration and distress and the supply of all wants. No felt needs or longings go unsatisfied. What will be our wants? No one really knows, except one want is that we will always want to be with the Lord. So what is heaven going to be like? We will see and we will know and we will love and we will be loved by Jesus unhindered. We will be with him and we get to live with him forever. I can't tell you exactly what that's going to be like, but I do know that knowing Jesus now, for us as believers, it brings a tremendous amount of joy, doesn't it? What if the joy that we experience now is merely just a seed? What if the peace that we experience now in knowing Jesus is merely just a seed? What if the love that we experience now, the satisfaction, the contentment, the safety, the security, what if these things are just seeds? It's the difference between the seed and the redwood that it grows into. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. For the words are trustworthy and true. He will dwell with us. And we will be his people, and he will be our God forever, unhindered. The ultimate quality of life. And I love how Jesus says, write it down. <laughs> are you writing this down? <laughs> Jesus says, write it down, because these words, they are trustworthy, and they are true. We can trust what he has to say about our future. We know what we can expect after we die, because our Lord tells us, and he gives us his promise, trustworthy and true and we can have confidence to know and to have expectancy based on certainty for the resurrection of our bodies and for life everlasting. Trusting and confidence for the future, expectancy based on certainty, and the Bible has a word for that. And it's called hope. And hope is a very, very powerful thing. I think one of the things that we are desperate for in this life is that we want to be sustained. We want to know that there is something that we get to look forward to or have that is going to get us through difficulties and challenges. There's a strong desire in us to have something for us to be able to get through Monday, for us to be able to get through the work week, to, to get through finals, to get through challenges and relationships to have strength and, and some kind of encouragement to help us make it through this life. 
And there's a lot of things this world has to offer that they say can help with this, right? We could try buying something new. We could, uh, we could try and diet and change the way that we look. We could try a new relationship. We could try to upgrade everything in our lives constantly. But we all know, we all know this does not give us strength, does it? These things are like a momentary escape away from weakness. That's it, this momentary escape. And there's so many people in this world, and they think that the only thing that they have, that their best option for making it through this life is escape. That's heartbreaking. To believe that escape is the best option you have for making it through this life. Where do we get our strength? Where do we get our endurance for the race that is set before us? It is called hope. In the last couple of years, I've been fixated on this word hope. I can't shake it. Uh, it's been something that has just stuck with me, and so I've been reading about it, and I've been writing about it, and talking to God about it, and I've been very excited about it. And so I've talked to many people about it. And last year, I got a chance to talk to a good friend of mine about hope. And I said, I've been thinking about hope a lot. And it's this, this something that is just so powerful in my life. And the, and the Bible calls it this, this steadfast anchor in my soul. And he's like, oh, really? Tell me more about it. Now, this guy is a believer. He's been a believer for about 40 years. He graduated from Bible school. So he's not a dummy when it comes to the Bible. And he loves the Lord. Okay? And when I started to talk to him about hope and hope in Jesus and how we have a living hope and it's powerful and it's active and it's doing something in our life and we look forward to something in the future, even though we can't see, we have this, this, this hope that it, that, it, that it burns in us like fuel. And he's like, no, nah, I don't really get that. I don't, I don't understand. He's like, I don't think that hope is that big of a deal. And so we talked for another 15 or 20 minutes. And after the end of 20 minutes, I realized that he and I, we are not on the same page when it comes to hope. And I finally asked him, what do you think that hope means? And he says, well, isn't hope like this really strong desire? Okay, so in English, the word hope is ambiguous. I hope it rains next week, or I hope the sun comes out tomorrow. I hope the check comes in the mail. I hope the Blazers win, uh, whatever. I, I hope you have a good day, or I hope you have a good week, right? Meaning I have my fingers crossed. I want it to. I have a strong desire for that to happen, so I'm going to wish for that to happen, and I'm going to call it hope with no assurances that my wish will come true. Now, the way we use it generally in that way, the word hope is defined at its very weakest, okay? But in its truest and fullest biblical way that it's used by God in Scripture, it means to have a sure and confident expectation, not a strong desire, not a wish, that there's something in the future that we can't see, but we know, we know it is going to happen. And we are confidently expecting it to happen. And that kind of hope is a very powerful thing. And my friend says, I can't believe that all these years I've been reading the Bible. And every time I come to the word hope, that is not what I've been thinking. At the end of the chapter, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15. 
At the very, very end, verse 58, it begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, okay? Therefore, in light of what was just being said about the resurrection, in light of what was just being said about life everlasting, he says, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God promises your resurrection, therefore, be steadfast and immovable. Nothing moving you away from God's will. You're steadfast, not, not deviating off of course. How can you be steadfast and immovable? You need hope for that. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Working and laboring to the point of exhaustion is what he's talking about. This requires strength and endurance and to know that our work is not in vain. I mean, this is about encouragement. You need hope for that. Not some weak hope where we keep our fingers crossed. Not, not some weak hope that's just really desiring something to happen with, without any confidence that it's going to happen. True hope, believers. True hope where we have confidence in the future based on certainty. That kind of hope only comes from God. It only comes from him. True hope where we have assurance of things to come based on certainty, man, that only comes from a promise made by someone who is faithful and true, who never changes, and whose word always will remain. That kind of hope for our future, it crashes into the present. It begins to change the way that we think about our destinies. It changes the way that we think about our purpose and what we're doing here in this life. There was two great plagues that hit Rome back in the day. One was in 165 A.D., and then also again in 251 A.D. Records show that it was awful. It devastated the cities throughout the region. At one point, an estimated uh, 35,000 people were dying each week in Rome. And everyone who had means, they were getting out of Dodge. They were leaving town. Even doctors, it says, fled in huge numbers. Families would abandon family members who got sick. They would abandon them and they would never come back. This was not true for everyone. Christians, they stayed behind. And not only did they take care of their family members, they brought in strangers as well and took care of them. And it turned out the mortality rate of the plague was cut in half, 50%, simply by having someone to take care of you, to give you food and fresh water. If there is no resurrection, and this life is all there is, and there's a plague, then run for your life. If this life is all there is, and the plague hits, run. Right? Run for your life. Save ourselves so that we can survive another day to be able to eat and drink and be self-indulgent. But if you believe, if there is hope in the resurrection and that there is a life after this life, then it frees us up to sacrifice ourselves for others, to give even though it is hard to stay and take care of those who are sick. And many of the sick I mean, these guys, they were considered to be pagans who weren't believers. And many 
of these that the believers cared for, the, the ones that survived, they, came, they became believers. See, our confidence in the resurrection enables us to pick up our cross, to give sacrificially to others, even if it means pain and suffering. Because many of the believers, they subjected themselves to risk for the sake of others. Many of them were infected with the plague and many of them did die. But the hope of our resurrection, and it moves us to give of ourselves, even to others that might not think the same way as we do, right? That don't have the same values, that don't have the same beliefs, that don't have the same opinions as we do. The hope of the resurrection, it moves us in the direction toward others for the glory of God and for us to be able to give of ourselves as living sacrifices. Hope is a very powerful thing. It crashes into the present and it causes us to stay, to stay to be steadfast and immovable, not dependent on our circumstances, but only dependent on what God has moved us to do. And it offers us joy and encouragement through all of it. I'm going to end with some of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his last book uh, in the Narnia series. And if you haven't read the books and you would like to, then kind of a spoiler alert, kind of, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read <laughs> the very last paragraph of the last book called The Last Battle. But I promise you, I promise you, it will not ruin the story for you. In fact, I hope that what it would do is uh, it would enhance it based on what the topic of today has been. So if you haven't read the book, there are, there are four siblings and they discover this secret entrance way into another realm called Narnia. And they meet a lot of different characters, and they have this adventure. Uh, and one of the characters that they meet there is a lion, and uh, his name is Aslan. And in every way, uh, Aslan is Jesus. Uh, he represents Jesus in every single way. Uh, and the children find themselves not on earth and not in Narnia, but they find themselves uh, with Aslan in his country, in his kingdom. And Aslan is talking to the children, and he says this. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. Redwoods, okay? And for us, this is the end of all their stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth had read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Man, that is our hope. That is our confident assurance. The Bible calls it a living hope, that it's powerful and active in our lives. It calls us this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? 
through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. And we can put all of our hope in that. We can put all of our hope eggs in that one basket because it will not disappoint. And when we do, it will change your life. It will change the way that you live right now in a very powerful way to drive you to say, yes, Lord, even when it is hard, even when it is difficult, and to be able to experience joy and encouragement in that. And if you're interested in that kind of hope, then I got to tell you, it starts with Jesus. It starts with Jesus. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. To know Jesus is to know hope. But maybe you are here and you already know Jesus, but maybe you're not really experiencing that kind of hope in your life. Maybe it's not really the way that you've thought about hope like that. You can start right now. You can start right now simply by talking to God about hope, talking to him, asking him to take the things like his promises, the things that he is going to do for you, the things that you can't see, to take these things and begin to embed them in your soul to let it saturate through your whole life. And then believers, you need to read your Bibles, okay? You need to read your Bibles every day as often as you can. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. This is so huge. This is so significant when it comes to hope and Scripture. It says, for whatever was written in former days, he's talking about Scripture, was written for your instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. For whatever was written in former days was written for your instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Believers, read your Bibles. Remind yourselves and allow the Spirit to remind you about God's promises and where he is bringing us. And the Apostles' Creed, it ends on such a positive note, doesn't it? Because one of the things that it does, it reminds us, it proclaims common, our common expectancies for the future based on certainty. It proclaims our common assurance of the future. It proclaims our common hope, a hope that we have in the resurrection of our bodies and our lives everlasting. And that kind of hope, it will change your life. Father, we thank you for the hope that you offer to us based on who you are, based on the fact that you never lie, that you never change. And so when you say something is going to happen, you mean it and it will no matter what. And we can put all of our assurance based on certainty on that. Oh, and there's so much joy in that. There's so much release in that. There's so much peace in that. And we want that more we want to be able to be living sacrifices for you. We want to be able to and do and, and, and to be able to do the things that you would have us to do. 
not dependent upon our circumstances, not dependent on whether it will cause us pain or put us in harm's way. We want to say yes to you in every way and to bring you honor and glory here in this life. So help us, Father, with that. Help us to remind us. Help us to embed the resurrection and embed the life everlasting into our souls. Let it saturate our entire being so that we fully trust in you and we put all of our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.